Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing in the series that we began some time ago entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we've now begun part six of seven parts. And all of the notes and previous recordings for all of these studies are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And you can hopefully find any of the previous studies there. Uh, I would strongly recommend downloading the notes so you can have them uh, to follow along with us, whether you're on the phone or listening to the recordings. And we have now come to page 93, if you are following in those notes. Uh, let me give just a very brief recap. And again, I don't go over previous studies since everything is recorded. But we are looking now at the seven nations that were living in Canaan, the promised land, God had brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched arm, brought them through the Red Sea, took them to Mount Sinai, gave them his law, and so many other amazing things happened there. Then they went through that long 40 years in the wilderness where God weeded out the unbelieving generation, raised up a new generation of faith to enter in, under the leadership of Joshua. And from the very beginning, God had been telling them, there are nations who are already residing in the land of Canaan. They're evil, wicked, perverse nations. And not for your sake, but because of their wickedness, I'm going to drive them out so that you can go in and take possession of their land. And... We have been seeing that this whole picture of Israel coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land is a type and a shadow of our spiritual journey as Christians. We come out of the bondage of sin and we are moving into the abundant life in Christ, which of course reaches its final culmination in heaven where we possess all that God has promised us as a part of our eternal inheritance as his children. Now, this part of the study is extremely important, and we're going to be taking quite a bit of time on this part. And we've just really scratched the surface. We're looking at the first of these seven nations, which are all enumerated in Deuteronomy 7 and a number of other places in the Old Testament. But we are looking at it from the standpoint that as Christians, we are also in a war. And Ephesians 6 tells us our warfare is not against flesh and blood. So we're not fighting against nations or races of people. Matter of fact, our problem isn't with people at all. Paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with powers, principalities, rulers of evil and darkness in heavenly places. And we've seen in previous studies that these seven nations represent different demonic, 
evil powers, call them what you will, strongholds, but they're powers of darkness that must be overcome, conquered, dispossessed, in order for us to possess what belongs to us, what has been promised to us. And this first nation that we are hopefully going to complete tonight, the Canaanites, are very important for us to understand. And let me give a quick recap here. The Canaanites were the descendants of Noah's cursed grandson, Canaan. And we went through that whole scenario of why he was cursed and how Canaan actually gave rise not only to the Canaanites, but five of the other nations. So actually six of the seven nations are directly related to that incident and the curse that God brought upon Canaan. And we've been looking at the Canaanites as representing a spirit of worldliness, love of the world, love of money. The Canaanites were merchants. That's what the name means. They were peddlers. They were merchants. And I've had to clarify this several times. Being a business person is not evil. Buying and selling is not evil. And money isn't evil. But the love of money, we are told in 1 Timothy 6, is the root of all evil. Very interesting. Canaan is actually the root of of all these other evil nations, the the descendants of Canaan became all of these wicked nations, with one exception, and that's the Perizzites, and we're not really sure where they came from. There's nothing mentioned in the Bible about their genealogy or where they came from. But the other nations that we know, all of them descended from Canaan. And there's a direct link here The love of money is the root of all other evil. So this spirit gives rise to a number of other evils that we're going to be studying in subsequent sessions. And the the spirit of the world, this is a spirit. And when when we're saying the world, we're not just talking about the physical globe, the the planet Earth. It's the whole system, the philosophy, the worldview, the, the whole spirit that predominates in this world. And we saw in 1 John 5, the Apostle John makes a very bold statement there, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And we looked at a number of scriptures referring to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, uh, the prince of this world, the god of this world. So this whole world system is being governed by an evil or a wrong spirit. And we need to understand how to overcome that spirit. Let me say just one or two more things that we've already looked at, and then we're going to look tonight specifically at how to defeat, 
how to overcome this spirit. But we saw in 1 John 2 uh, a stern warning from the same Apostle John, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. And he goes on to say, everything in the world, and he doesn't just mention cars and houses and the stock market. He says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. James goes on with even stronger language and says, if you're a friend of the world, then you're an enemy of God. And it's actually spiritual adultery. He says in James 4.4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And I am convinced in these last days we are going to see this more and more clearly as we approach the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two separate groups, two separate entities that are being clearly manifested in the world today. There's the bride of Christ, and there's the harlot. The harlot church is this group that has committed spiritual adultery. They've not been faithful to the Lord. They've not been faithful to His Word. They've embraced the God of this world, the ways of this world, and the love of this world. The love of the Father is not in them. And we want to be the bride of Christ. We want not the love of the world, but we want the love of God to fill our hearts and lives. We don't want to be adulterous people. We want to be friends with God. We want to be married to Jesus Christ. And we looked at a number of warnings in the New Testament against being spotted, polluted, defiled by the world, uh, to keep ourselves unstained, uncontaminated by this world. And hopefully you don't watch a whole lot of news, but if you watch anything that's going on in the world, you know that the world is becoming sicker and more polluted by the day. And we have to separate ourselves from that whole system if we are going to keep from going the way of the world. All right, now, let's move into some new territory tonight. Again, if you're following in the notes, this is page 93, How to Overcome Worldliness. And again, let me reiterate, money is not evil. The love of money is the problem. And... The, the sun, the moon, the stars, the physical aspects of this creation, they're not inherently evil. It's the system of this world, the philosophy, the, the whole mindset of this world that is under the control of the evil one. And so we want to look at seven different ways, seven different areas where we can apply the Word of God to our lives and be assured that we can overcome this spirit of the world, the love of the world, 
uh, etc. The first one we want to look at is faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Look with me in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Listen to those words. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. When you and I are born again by God's holy seed, through the word of God, we are transformed. Christ comes to dwell in our hearts by faith. We become a new creation in Christ. That experience of being born of God is enough to enable us to overcome this world. If we allow that experience to grow and to develop, we will become sons and daughters of God, fully equipped to overcome the world. That's a bold statement. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Now he's going to explain it. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I love this scripture, and I often use it in my teaching and preaching because it's a very powerful truth. And I always like to look at scriptures from different angles. What does it say, and what does it not say? Notice it does not say, faith gives us the victory. A lot of people think, oh, if I have enough faith, and I keep trusting, and I keep trusting, and I keep trusting, eventually I'll get the victory in this situation. I understand what we're saying there, but that's not what John is is teaching here. He says, faith is the victory. There's a difference between faith giving you the victory or bringing you the victory one day in the by and by, and my state of being right now, of walking in faith, trusting in God with my whole heart, standing on God's word and God's promises, that state of being in faith is victory. I have victory right now if I believe. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And of course, he reiterates, the only way to become born of God is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not talking about just some intellectual belief in our brain. We really have faith in our heart. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And like Paul taught the Romans in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, then real salvation comes into our lives. Believing that Jesus died on the cross took all of my sins, went into the grave. Three days later, God raised him up in victory and power. If I believe that and now confess that he is my Lord, then I'm saved. I'm born again, born of God. That is the victory that overcomes the world. And as Peter says, as newborn babes, we have to keep growing on the milk, and then finally we begin to 
feed on the strong meat of God's Word, and we mature. We become uh, sons and daughters of God, full-grown men and women of God who are well-equipped to overcome the world. So the first, and at the top of the list, the first key to overcoming this spirit of the world is to put our faith and trust in God and specifically in Jesus Christ, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The second key to overcoming the world and worldliness, this comes from a scripture that has become very important to me, and it's kind of obscure in a lot of Christian circles, sadly, but it should be taught very often. Christians are famous for talking about grace, but they often use grace as an excuse for them to continue to be carnal, worldly, weak Christians. Oh, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I'm, I'm not really doing very well, but praise God for His grace. Well, that's not the way Paul taught grace in the churches. Grace is not an excuse for us to go on being weak, carnal, and worldly. Notice what he says about grace in this next passage of Scripture, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And I got even a fresh revelation of this Scripture this week as we're preparing to go back to school with the students and start teaching them things. Notice what it says about the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Praise God for that. By grace we are saved through faith. The grace of God has appeared, and it offers salvation to all people. But he has something more to say about grace. It, referring back to the grace of God, it teaches us. So, Not only does grace save us, but it begins from that point onwards to teach us. Grace is our teacher now. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. Hmm. Grace teaches us to say no to worldliness. So, grace is a very powerful key. It's a very powerful weapon to overcoming the world, the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all this stuff that makes up the spirit of the world. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So, 
grace saves us, but it doesn't excuse us from changing. Grace is supposed to work powerfully in our lives, teaching us to say no to certain things, also teaching us how to live, live self-controlled, live upright, and live godly lives in this present age. So, when you and I say, praise God, I'm saved by grace, well, what we're implying is that grace is now beginning a transforming work in our lives, so that more and more we should find ourselves living self-controlled, living upright, living godly lives in this present age. And if after 40 years of being a Christian, we've seen absolutely no change in our life, I think there's good reason to question whether or not we've really found grace or not. Because all those 40 years, the grace of God was trying to teach us. Teach us to say no to the love of money. Teaching us to say no to worldly passions, worldly desires, ungodly ways. And it's teaching us how to live positively, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's also, by the way, teaching us to wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, any child of God who claims to have been saved by grace, that grace is also working inside of them, causing them to look for the return of Christ, motivating them to want to change their lifestyle to get it more and more in line with God's Word, living upright and godly lives. So, two important keys thus far. Faith, faith is the victory that overcomes the world, and grace. Grace works in us, and it teaches us to say no to the world. So, when those temptations come to want to be like the world, oh, I want to be rich, I want to look like so-and-so, I want to have a house like so-and-so, the grace of God is there to say, no, that's not really what I want. I want to live upright. I want to live godly. I want to get ready for the soon return of my heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Now, the third point is a very powerful, very important one, and we're going to spend a good deal of time here, and I'm not even sure if we'll get beyond this one tonight. And I don't want to race through this because it's so important. You know, the so-called church is having one grand love affair with the world. I'm not talking about our particular church I'm talking about the universal church in general. Um, there's a great love affair going on between the church and the world. And remember what James says about it. It's adultery. It's enmity with God, and it's adultery. And we need to understand very carefully where God stands on this whole issue. 
He is very grieved with the people within the church who have compromised and they've actually become so intermingled with the world, there's no difference, there's no distinction between the world and the so-called church. In the book of Deuteronomy, I want us to turn once again back to chapter 7, where these seven enemy nations are enumerated. And we only touched on this before. I want to get back to it in more detail now. When God told the Israelites about these seven nations and how they had to be conquered and driven out, he also gave the Israelites stern warnings not to make any compromise with those nations. Okay? So, this third key to overcoming worldliness, we're going to call it do not compromise. Do not conform, do not compromise with the world. And in Deuteronomy 7, we're going to read from verse 1 to 6 again. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Pay close attention to these words now. You must destroy them totally. The Lord's going to deliver them over to you. Now you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. In other words, no compromise. Don't mingle with these people. Don't adopt any of their customs. Don't learn any of their ways. Destroy them. Don't make any agreements, treaties, business deals with them. Just destroy them, period. Don't marry them. Don't give your sons or daughters to marry any of them. Don't align yourselves with these nations in any way, shape, or form. You can't get any clearer than these words. Destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Why? God knows human nature better than we do. Verse 4. For they, those enemy nations, they will turn your children away from following me. That's the whole root right there. They will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn, not against the enemies, against you. And he will quickly 
destroy you. So this is kind of a double-edged sword here. God already told them, I'm going to wipe out these seven nations. They make me sick. They make me want to vomit. They're perverse. They're evil. They're wicked. I'm going to drive them all out. But don't you join yourself with them or you will incite my anger against you, and I will destroy you quickly. Verse 5. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Notice, this also confirms something we've talked about in previous studies. these enemy nations, as evil and wicked as they were, they had a form of religion. They worshipped different kinds of idols. They had altars even upon which they offered human sacrifices. In some cases, offering their own children as sacrifices to these false gods. That's why it mentions altars, sacred stones, Asherah poles, these were objects of their religion, religious objects and idols. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. Verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. We must understand the meaning of the word holy. A lot of Christians have a totally warped idea about what holiness is. They think it's just the way you dress, or what movies you can go see, or outward things like appearance and dress and makeup and all of that. The word holy, in its essence, means separate, to be separate. And you can't have true holiness unless it includes the whole idea of separating from something to be separated unto something else. In this case, separated from these evil, defiling nations, separated unto the Lord to be his people, his treasured possession. And the whole key here is we must be separate from the world. We must be separate from the spirit of the world. We must be holy unto the Lord. And just as they were told, don't make any compromises, don't conform to the religion, the ways, the customs, the philosophy of these seven evil nations, so you and I are warned by God, don't join yourself with the spirit of this world. Interesting that James actually uses that word, adultery. Don't enter into an intimate bond or an intimate relationship with this world. 
just as the Israelites were warned, don't intermarry with these nations, so you and I must be very careful not to marry the spirit of this world. Don't become intimate with the spirit of this world. Be holy. Be separate. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. Have nothing to do with the religions, the ways, the philosophies of this world. The next verse we've looked at earlier in this study, but I want to return to it because it really highlights the fact that the Israelites didn't pay heed to what they were told here in Deuteronomy 7. They went ahead and did just the opposite. They intermarried with these uh, evil nations. They adopted their customs. They ended up adopting their religion and their idol worship. And they even adopted the practice of sacrificing their own sons and daughters to these false gods. And God had warned them, if you do that, you're going to make me angry and I'll destroy you just like I destroyed those evil nations. Well, let's look at what happened. Psalm 106, from verse 34 to 40. Referring to the Israelites in context, they, the Israelites, did not destroy the peoples, that's these seven nations, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. You see, mingling is the opposite of being separate. Being separate is the essence of holiness. They got all mixed up mingled with these nations, and you couldn't tell the difference between an Israelite and a Canaanite or a Jebusite. They all looked the same. They were all jumbled up. They were mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. You see, God had a whole separate set of rules, laws, and customs for the Israelites. They were a separate, distinct people. They were to live according to God's law, not according to the customs of these other nations. But they didn't obey God. They mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds they prostituted themselves. Therefore the Lord was angry with the people and abhorred his inheritance." You know, as Christians living in a fallen world where the educational system, the public school system, most of the colleges and universities, they're all completely under the spirit of this world. Our little children are taught from preschool on up 
that we all evolved from monkeys, there's no God, the Bible isn't true, and no wonder by the time they're graduating from college, they're all leaving the churches because they've adopted the customs of this world. And as parents, Christians have to bear some of the blame for this because in in a spiritual sense, we've put our sons and daughters on the altar and we've sacrificed them to the gods of Canaan, to the gods of this world. Why? Well, we want them to become doctors and lawyers because we want them to get rich and we don't really mind too much if all they hear for four, six, eight years while they're in college, medical school, law school, or whatever it may be, all they ever hear is God is dead, the Bible is a lie, and we all evolve from monkeys. And then we wonder why when they're done with all of their education, they no longer believe in God. Well, we laid them on that altar. We sacrificed them to the idols of this world. And I think Christians need to wake up, and we need to stop uh, buying into this so-called American dream that everybody has to go off to college and have a master's degree and a Ph.D. Why? So they can make a whole bundle of money. There it is. The love of money is the root of all evil. Love of money is often the God that we're really worshiping. We're sacrificing even our sons and our daughters to the idol of love for money. God was very angry with his people because they disregarded his warning. They mingled with the nations and they adopted their customs. In Joshua 24, the very last chapter of Joshua, Joshua's done. All of his conquests are over, but he has some very stern words for the Israelites. And you'll recognize part of this passage because it's very often quoted. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. He tells the Israelites, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped. That's real good advice. Throw them away. Throw away all those idols, all those false gods that your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. And do what? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. But, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. Not a very good choice. A lot of people misquote that verse. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, he's not giving them a real good option you either choose the gods that your ancestors worshipped, they were false gods, or choose the gods of the Amorites. Why? They didn't want to serve the Lord. 
He says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, that's plan A. If you reject plan A, then you can choose plan B or plan C. Neither of those are good options. Then he finishes this by saying, but as for me and my household, I want plan A. We will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. Throw away the gods of the Canaanites, the Amorites, and all these other evil nations. Now, let's bring this over into the New Testament. Some people listening may say, ah, that's all Old Testament stuff. Now we're under grace, we're free, we don't have all these laws about what to eat, what to wear, what books we can read, what music we can listen to. Let's look at what the Bible does say. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Notice, these are all different metaphors that are talking about the same thing. It's being joined, conformed to, mingled with the world. Don't be yoked. Don't have fellowship with. And then the big question in verse 16 again, what agreement is there? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Here comes the punchline, verse 17. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. That's the word for holiness. Be separate. Come out from among them. Don't be yoked together. Don't have fellowship with darkness. Don't have an agreement with idols. Separate yourself. Come away. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. The very next verse, chapter 7, verse 1, talks about perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Holiness. And if it helps you, keep reminding yourself, holy holiness means separate from. We're, we're separating ourselves from things that are unclean, things that are going to contaminate or defile our Christian life. Let's go back over this quickly. 
don't be yoked together with unbelievers. That metaphor of being yoked together always refers to marriage. When we get married, husband and wife are yoked together. God unites them together as one. Believers are not to marry unbelievers. And if you're single, if you're unmarried, understand God is not trying to mess up your life. He's trying to protect you. He's trying to save you from something. Why? Because there's not going to be any agreement. What agreement is there between a believer and an unbeliever? Well, there might be some in the flesh, but there won't be any agreement in the spirit. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we all have to go to work, we have to ride the metro, we have to go to the grocery store. We're surrounded by unbelievers. That doesn't mean we shun them and don't talk to them, we don't have anything to do with them. There's a difference between being with unsaved people and actually entering into true fellowship with them. And certainly, we don't want to be married to an unbeliever. Now, some listening, you may have already married an unbeliever, uh, or maybe you were an unbeliever and your spouse was an unbeliever, and after getting married, one of you became a Christian. Well, 1 Corinthians 7 addresses that situation. Don't run out and divorce them just because you're now a Bible thumper and they're not. Hopefully, through your conduct and through your prayers, you can bring your spouse on board and they can also become a believer. Even if they don't, that in itself is not grounds for a divorce or for a separation. If you're single, then praise God. You haven't entered into marriage yet. Understand clearly what the Bible teaches in the New Testament. This is an Old Testament now. In the New Testament, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. And, you know, there's always going to be someone who thinks, well, you know, my situation's different. Um, I call it evangelistic dating. A young lady who's saved thinks that she's going to win this young man to the Lord, and eventually he'll come around, let's go ahead and get married, and he's kind of promised that he'll start coming to church with me. No, 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 no. That's not what the Bible teaches. Either he gets saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit first, or Paul says, mm, better put that one on hold. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He asks some interesting questions here. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? They don't mix. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, the god of this world, the devil? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, you probably have unsaved family members. Maybe a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a son or a daughter, a grandson or a granddaughter. They're still your children, your grandchildren, your husband or your wife. But spiritually speaking, 
What do you have in common? You know, I have one brother, a biological brother. I'm happy to talk with him. I'm happy to meet with him. But to be very honest with you, we have very little in common. And whenever I try to talk with him about what's important in my life, God and the Bible and the kingdom of God, he immediately wants to change the subject to sports or something else because we don't have that in common. And a believer just does not have the same set of values that an unbeliever has. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Well, the answer is none. Paul's solution to all of this is very simple. Come out from them and be separate. Be holy. Don't get contaminated. Don't conform. Don't be defiled by this world. The Israelites failed to do this, and a lot of Christians in the world today are also failing. They're so mixed up with the world, so mingled with the world, they've adopted all the customs of the world, the music, the language, the dress, everything. You can't tell the difference. There just isn't any distinction now between most of what is called the church and the world. You know, I wouldn't recommend spending a whole lot of time doing this, but you can turn on one of the popular Christian, so-called, radio stations and listen to a lot of the music, so-called Christian music, and then turn the dial a few notches to one of the worldly music stations and you'll be amazed to find, wow, it all sounds the same. Maybe the words are just a little bit different, but it's the same beat, same music, same everything. And I happen to know firsthand from talking to some people who are involved in the Christian music industry, a lot of the so-called Christian music that you're tapping your feet and hands to on the Christian radio the musicians, the singers, and in some cases, even the composers of the music are not even Christian. They're complete heathens. And another sad trend that I'm quite aware of is many of the big uh, megachurches, they actually employ unsaved musicians to play all of their music in their Sunday worship. They hire them. These are unsaved, often pot-smoking people from the world who are just not even saved, but they happen to play guitar well, they sing well, they play the piano well. So they're hired to come into the church and to do the worship service for the church. I'm very passionate about this because I understand the, the close affinity between music and spiritual things. And in the Old Testament, the pattern is very clear. The only ones that were allowed to participate in worship 
and music in the temple of God were the Levites, the ones who were completely separated and consecrated unto God. And in the church today, we need to be separate from the defilements of this world. And I think that means even in our worship and in our music. This is just one of many areas where I think a great deal of compromise has been made. Again, this third section is very simple to remember. No compromise. Don't compromise with the world. Come out from among them and be separate. And I'm going to finish with one last verse, and we're going to have to close it here tonight, and we'll look at the remaining three steps or keys to overcoming the world next time. But very important scripture in Romans 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. These next words are in bold in your outline. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One of two things is going to happen in your life and mine. We will conform or be transformed. We will conform to the world, or we will allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to completely transform our mind, our mindset, so we have a totally different world view, view of the world. Can't get any clearer than this. Do not conform. And the pressure is very great. The temptations are all around us, and they are continual, telling us, conform to the world. Be like everybody else. Think like everybody else. Talk like everybody else. Adopt the same values as everyone else. Well, let me tell you something. This world's values are completely perverted. The world is so messed up now, it doesn't even matter whether a majority of people believe X, Y, or Z. It doesn't matter that the majority believe something. The majority is often wrong in the world today. The majority of people in the United States are in favor of gay marriage. I don't care if 99% vote for it. It's still wrong. It's an abomination in the eyes of God. It's detestable to our Father. And we have to make a choice. Am I going to conform to the majority? 
Am I going to go along with what all my co-workers believe and what everybody in my family believes? Or am I going to allow the Word of God to transform me, renew my mind, and tell me, no, come out from them and be separate? Nowhere in the New Testament does, does God tell us, imitate the world, Look like the world, talk like the world, be like the world so you can win the world. Nowhere in the New Testament does it teach that. Jesus did say, you are in the world, but not of it. We are here to be lights. We are here to win the world to Jesus Christ. Sadly, what is often happening is the world is winning us. We're conforming to the world rather than them conforming to a whole new way of life, the way of Christ. So these are very important words here in Romans 12. We are to offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, come out from the world, be separate, do not conform. And notice, I like this translation, do not conform to the pattern of this world. I'm not talking about the trees and the mountains. It's the whole pattern of this world. It's the, the spirit behind this world and its religions, its philosophies. And, you know, this week was a very interesting week. We saw the stock market plunging and then making a comeback and then plunging and making another comeback. And I'm going to tell you something. <clears throat> this is just the beginning. God has begun to arise, and he's going to shake this land terribly. God will not be mocked. He will shake the United States of America, and no better place to shake it than at the root, the money. Everybody loves their money. And oh my God, when the stock market starts to collapse and everybody's 401k is worth half of what it was worth last week, and their stocks and their bonds are worthless, oh, then God starts to get people's attention. And this is just the beginning. We haven't seen the real collapse yet, but there's going to be a major collapse in the whole financial economic system of America, because that's the... That's the God of America now, the God of money. That's the idol that most Americans are worshiping, the God of money. And we need to make sure we're not conforming to the pattern of this world. And next time, we're going to look at some other ways that will help us not to set our affection on money and material things, but to have a whole different hope, a whole different mindset for our day-to-day -day lives. To summarize here tonight, we overcome the world by faith, we overcome the world through the grace of God, and we overcome the world by making a firm decision, no compromise. Why do we want to be like the world? The world is under the control of Satan 
and the world is at complete enmity with our Heavenly Father. Why do we want to love the world? Why do we want to be married to the world? We should want to be separate from anything that is going to contaminate or defile our relationship with Jesus Christ. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Let's pray tonight. This is a very big issue. And we could spend many, many weeks actually talking about this. The Holy Spirit is going to have to help us in these last days to know what to do. What do we need to do to really effect this in our lives so that we are not mingled with the nations, adopting all of their customs? The Holy Spirit will speak to you and he will speak to me. And the grace of God in us will teach us to say no to worldly passions. You may be listening to a commercial on the radio or watching an ad on the internet or on the TV, and you start to feel something stirring inside of you. Yeah, I want to look like that. Yeah, I want to be like that. And then you'll hear the Holy Spirit whisper to you, no, no. Say no to worldly passion. Let's pray that God would deliver us from the love of the world, the love of money, the spirit of this age. Come out from among them and be separate. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Father, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you that your word addresses these issues very clearly in our lives. And you know, O oh God, our weakness and our tendency to drift back into sin, back into carnality, back into the ways of this world. But you've given us a different spirit, the Holy Spirit, to lead us and guide us into all truth. And you've given us the grace of God that teaches us to say no to worldly passions and to the spirit of this world. Lord, in these last days, you are calling out a bride, a holy people, separated unto yourself, a people prepared and fit to be married to your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, continue to work in our hearts and lives, preparing us for that great day, cleansing us, sanctifying us, setting us apart for yourself. We'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' holy name, amen and amen.